We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today. Scott Van Pelt will be on with us shortly. We'll talk college football, Maryland football, NFL with Scott. And then following Scott, the Wizards general manager, Tommy Shepard, will be on with us. The Wizards open up their 2022-2023 season on Wednesday night at Indiana. The NBA gets underway tomorrow night with a doubleheader. 76ers, Celtics, and then Lakers against the champion Golden State Warriors. Just a reminder, if you haven't rated or reviewed the show, especially on Apple and Spotify, if you don't mind, take two minutes and do that. Less than two minutes. Five stars if you're so inclined. A quick one to two sentence review really helps us out. So a few things to get to here in the open. Number one is this, and I'm going to talk to Scott more about this. Saturday was a spectacular day in sports. It was one of those days that if you're a sports fan, you realize why you're a sports fan. The dramatic games, the big stakes games in college football and in the Major League Baseball playoffs, just one after another. The Tennessee-Alabama game, one of the best games we've seen in recent memory. And then you had TCU and Oklahoma State going on at the same time. SC-Utah on Saturday night was phenomenal. You had all of these matchups between undefeated teams, three matchups between um, six teams that were all undefeated. It started with Michigan and Penn State, which wasn't much of a game. And then it was Tennessee and Alabama, TCU and Oklahoma State. Just incredible college football. Tennessee in particular and Bama. Uh, I don't know if college football or sports can get much better than the drama that unfolded in front of 110,000 people at Nayland Stadium in Knoxville, where they've been waiting years to finally beat Alabama, and it happened. All the while, um, you've got uh, an unbelievable scene in Philadelphia with the Phillies clinching uh, against the Braves. Uh, The crowd in Philadelphia for those two playoff games on Friday and Saturday, as great as the crowds were in places like Knoxville, um, in Fort Worth, uh, in Cleveland for the Indians and the Yankees game on Saturday night, which was the game in which the Indians rallied from three down, uh, or from two down to with with three in the bottom of the ninth to win, um, and then the Padres rallying from uh, a three nothing deficit against the Dodgers to eliminate the best team in baseball from the regular season. I'm not sure any crowd was as loud as the Philadelphia 
baseball crowd for those two games against the Braves. Uh, That was incredible. My God, is Bryce Harper having a postseason. And you get, by the way, now the two wild card teams and the two wild card teams that had to play on the road in the first weekend in the National League Championship Series, the Padres and the Braves. Yankees and Cleveland tonight. Garrett Cole was phenomenal last night. What a seventh inning to get out of that uh, to help the Yankees force uh, the game five tonight um, in the baseball playoffs. But Saturday was just one of those days. I'll stop and we'll pick up this conversation uh, with Scott uh, here uh, shortly. Um, I also wanted to mention before we get to the story for us, which broke Saturday morning, which was the Carson Wentz injury. I did take just a moment to go back um, and watch some of that dreadful game from Thursday night. And I wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, I've been a Scott Turner fan, as many of you know. I've been a Scott Turner fan, and not in the sense that I think Scott Turner is the best offensive coordinator by any stretch of the imagination. I just thought that Scott Turner deserved a chance, that he had shown me enough in 2020 and in 2021 that I kind of felt like he knew what he was doing. And I think he did in 2020 and 2021. And I'm not saying that every game this year has been bad, but he has to figure something out quickly. Um, And this is whether it's Wentz, Heineke, or Hal, and we'll get to that here momentarily. But in watching the game on Thursday night in particular, this team has a major problem along its offensive line with pass protection in particular. That has been the case since the beginning of the season. I think I shared these numbers with you on Friday that Washington, prior to the Chicago game, per the ESPN next-gen stat of pass protection win rate, was 30th in the league. All right, Only two teams were worse in actual pass blocking than Washington. Last year, same stat for the season, they were ninth in the league. Um, so there, while you know, I acknowledge that Scott Turner's part of the problem, the offensive line's part of the problem, Carson Wentz is part of the problem, the receivers not getting open consistently enough are part of the problem. For me, and I don't think Cooley agrees, but for me, it starts with interior pressure consistently over and over again has been a theme on drop-back passes going back to week one. And it's a problem, and it would be a problem for any quarterback in the NFL. Um, However, Scott Turner Thursday night, with pressure, extra man pressure in particular, does not seem to be prepared, or they don't seem to have answers. And look, this could be partly on the center. It could be partly on Wentz. But whatever the reason is, um, he's got to figure out answers to immediate pressure and especially extra man pressure because there were a couple of those immediate pressures and sacks with an extra pass rusher or two on occasion on Thursday night where receivers are just not running routes that are conducive to the ball getting out quickly. Now, some of these were on third down and really mid-range-ish kind of numbers, not long down and distance numbers where you've got to extend the play and you've got to protect to try to get the ball downfield. I'm talking about third and fives, third and six, third and fours, 
and the receivers are not turning around quickly enough. They're running routes with the expectation that Scott Turner must have that, hey, our pass protection's okay. It's going to get better. But it hasn't. And I think that he's got to figure that out. There, There's nothing wrong with, you know, throwing hot, as Cooley said, that there should be more hot throws. Hot route, hot route. Uh, Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson, uh, Jeremy and John uh, from Wedding Crashers. You gotta, you gotta have people that are open immediately with a lot of green grass because there was some off coverage during some of these extra man pressures on Thursday night, where maybe you do throw the ball short of the sticks and then you allow the Terry McLaurins, Curtis Samuels, you know, not Jahan Dotson the other night, to, you know, make a move and get the first down. You know, it's funny, over the years, I think all of us as football fans always get frustrated when on third and seven they throw it short of the sticks and somebody gets tackled. And you're like, what is he doing? you got to throw the ball beyond the sticks. No, watch the league. When there is extra man pressure and they're bringing more than you can block, and you're not in max protect. The ball comes out quickly, and then you're reliant on that pass catcher to make that first tackler miss and get a first down. A lot of first downs are made with throws short of the sticks. What I saw Thursday night on a couple of those extra man pressures is receivers that are not looking for a ball that's coming out quickly. That has to change. Scott Turner, whether it's Heineke or Hal, or Wentz is not as bad off as we think with the finger and his back shortly, you've got to come up with answers on third down. Just have to. The other thing I wanted to just mention real quickly from the Thursday night game, that last sequence, James Smith-Williams saved the game on the second down deflection. I think that's a touchdown pass. Uh, They've had a lot of deflections. James Smith-Williams did a really good job. Their D-line has really really improved here. Uh, and not that it you know has just improved. It's helped the overall defense improve because I think Allen and Payne have been consistent. And now Montez Sweat. Now he had a rookie tackle in front of him, understood. But he is becoming the player that he was as a rookie at times and that some of us thought he could be uh, when they drafted him in the first round. Uh when they get Chase Young back, if they do get Chase Young back, and there was some information from Ron the other day on that, look out. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, too, in follow-up to Thursday, and I tweeted this out, and I think I mentioned this with Tommy on Friday, but I wanted to reiterate it, and that is that Antonio Gibson needs to be as much a part of the game plan as Brian Robinson Jr., Ron Rivera did say in his Friday presser that he felt like they got away from Antonio too much. I don't know if that's just, you know, coach speak to say Antonio averaged seven yards per carry in the game and didn't get anywhere near the the same number of touches that that Brian Robinson got. Um, And he's just, you know, I, I hope they're serious about not leaving Antonio Gibson out there as a 15 to 20 percent total snap guy. We gave the stat the other day that when he plays more than 50% of the snaps, they over, they average over 27 points per game. And when he plays under 50% of the snaps in his career so far here in Washington, they average just over 11 points a game. That's a really incredible number. 
Uh, Gibson's important to this team. But what I wanted to say about Gibson is this. If they're not going to play him, if they made up this decision, uh, if they made their their decision and made up their minds before the draft, and that's why they drafted Brian Robinson Jr., and they're not believers in Antonio Gibson anymore, trade him before the deadline. This season's going nowhere. You know, Deron Payne would be the obvious one that you would look to trade if you're not going to get him signed when the season ends and he's an unrestricted free agent when the season ends. You know, you you might be able to get a lot for Deron Payne at the trade deadline. Uh, But the difference between Deron Payne and Antonio Gibson is Deron Payne is playing lights out and playing 84 to 85% of the snaps. And Gibson's playing well, but isn't playing nearly the same number of snaps because they've got Robinson back and they have McKissick. And they liked Jonathan Williams. He was hurt, you know, last week. But I would not hesitate. By the way, it would disappoint me because I really like Gibson a lot. But I would not hesitate if I don't believe in Gibson as much as I believe in Brian Robinson Jr., and I really like McKissick, and McKissick signed right now, I would not hesitate to deal Gibson. There are teams out there looking for running backs, good teams. Buffalo, Kansas City among those teams looking for running backs. Christian McCaffrey is going to be a high, high price tag. Gibson, not as much. I mean, could you get a, a third rounder for Gibson? I think you might be able to. Um, you know, sometimes those trade deadline deals come with a higher price tag because teams are sitting there going, we have a chance to make a deep run and we're willing to pay for that if we don't have a certain player at a certain position. I don't want that to happen because I'd like Gibson to stay here. I think he's a good player having a good season and he hasn't fumbled yet, but I don't know that they feel the same way. So if they don't, they shouldn't make the mistake and hold on to a player that they don't see being a big part of their plans because they've got another guy there that is a much bigger part of their plans. And I know that, you know, you need two, but they do have McKissick. They got a nice change of pace. They like Jonathan Williams. Lastly, uh, before we get to Scott, was the news that broke Saturday morning. And by the time you listen to this, maybe there will be news specific to the trip that Carson Wentz apparently is making to the West Coast to get his finger Uh, looked at, uh, but we don't have that news as I'm recording right now. Carson Wentz, the news broke Saturday morning, has a broken finger and was going to Los Angeles today to have a specialist look at that. Uh, A couple of thoughts. Number one is this. I mentioned this on Friday. Tough hombre on Thursday night to play with a bicep strain going in at at less than 100%. Uh, to play with a broken finger that happens sometime in the second quarter for the rest of the game, and then to play with an ankle injury that had to be taped um, in the second half at one point. I actually wonder why they played him. I mean, a broken finger, typically, I'm not you know a doctor here, but I've broken fingers before. I've certainly badly sprained fingers before. Um, you know when it's broken, typically, and... I would imagine that at halftime they were able to diagnose a broken finger or at least a badly sprained finger, which, you know, was going to impact his ability to throw the football. I mean, the problem is with Carson Wentz, no offense, you really can't tell between the inaccurate throw with a busted finger and just the normal run of the mill Carson Wentz inaccurate throw. But 
Um, tough ombre to finish out that game. Uh, you know, one of the reasons he may not have played super well and thrown for 99 yards is he was not healthy in the game. You also have to wonder, don't you, why they didn't yank him? I mean, this was a must-win situation. Did they really think they had a better chance with Carson Wentz and, and the bicep strain and a bad ankle and a broken finger than they did by putting Taylor Heineke in the game in the second half? It's kind of interesting. You know, they, they were desperate for a win Thursday night, super desperate. I wonder if any of this stuff related to the uh, story from Seth Wickersham and Don Van Natta Jr. earlier um, in the day had anything to do with him leaving Wentz out there. Or maybe they just didn't know it was a, it was a broken finger. Maybe Carson didn't tell him. He's like, no, 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 it's just sprained a little. It's fine. You don't need to look at it. Um, so. For the purposes of this brief conversation, let's just assume that he's out for a while. First thought that comes to mind is this. It's possible Carson Wentz played his final game as a Washington commander Thursday night in Chicago. Do the math on this. If he broke his finger and he's out several weeks, which is a possibility, at least it was reported as a possibility, I mean, if the team tanks with... Taylor Heineke in there. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, and, you know, the season is mathematically or practically over by the time Wentz is ready to play. You play Hal at that point. And you're not keeping Wentz next year. I think we know that already. Uh, now, if they play really well with Heineke, are you going to pull Heineke? So, I mean, there's an in-between. You know, you you win a couple games, you lose a couple games. Heineke's really not that great, or he's decent in a couple games, not so good in others. And then Wentz is ready to go and you put him back in there, I guess. You've got that 70% snap threshold to think about, but he's going to miss a few games. So that takes you into a latter uh, portion of the calendar, of the season calendar. If they had lost to Chicago, I would have been advocating for Sam Howell to begin with. Now, I said specifically on Sam Howell if they lost to Chicago, if he's remotely ready. If he's not ready, and they can only, they're the ones that tell you that. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. You haven't been to practice. He's not ready to play in an NFL game. We're not going to put him out there. Okay, that's fine. But if he's, you know, good enough and they, they're intrigued and he's looked good with the few reps he gets in practice and he didn't get many, um, then I would have been all for seeing him this week against Green Bay had they lost to Chicago. But they beat Chicago, which, as I said on Friday, kind of saved the season, didn't salvage the season, saved the season. So I'd like to see Heineke. We're going to see Heineke. I mean, that's what they're going to do. He's the backup quarterback. And at 2-4 and four right now, I'm sure they're going through the exercise of saying, we're only a game back of like five teams tied for the seven seed the last wild card spot. We also have Green Bay coming up uh, this weekend, and they were awful yesterday. Man, they were terrible against the Jets, and Aaron Rodgers is beat up. He does not look healthy. You know, it's all about when you play them, not who you play, and they may be be getting great timing with their game against Green Bay. I want to see Heineke at 2-4. and Uh, you know, unless they were convinced that Hal was ready and Hal with a much bigger arm than Heineke's would give him a better chance to win. And also you'd learn more about Hal. I mean, obviously I'd be for that, but I don't know that that's the case. But assuming that Hal is rather green at this point, you're going to be getting a typical, you know, first-time rookie performance um, when when he finally gets out there. I would go with Heineke. I like Heineke. 
I've never disliked Heineke. I like Heineke as a backup quarterback in the NFL. Said that many times. He's just not a starter in the NFL. You start Taylor Heineke 15 and a half games, was it last year? You're going to end up with seven wins, which is what they ended up with. Now, you know, COVID, injuries, understood. Every team went through that. Every team has those kinds of things. Taylor Heineke is a gamer. I love him as a backup. He's fearless. He's going to make some plays, good and bad. But his arm is so limited. You cannot win over a 17-game regular season um, enough games to be a legitimate contending team with a quarterback that really just has non-NFL arm strength. You know, no matter how well he anticipates, and even that at times is a question mark. You know, I think there's a chance they could play well this weekend, and I think with the interior pass rush issues that they have, um, you know, Heineke has a chance against that because he's more mobile. But we saw Heineke in that Dallas game, you know, after the four-game winning streak, end up with like a 5.3 QBR. He was getting bum-rushed, couldn't escape it. And it was bad. They had to put Kyle Allen into the game. Um, but no, I'm for Heineke playing on Sunday, you know, assuming Hal is nowhere near ready and Wentz is out. And that's what they'll do, I'm sure. Uh, lastly, uh, because I think this is lastly twice um, now in this first segment, the NFL uh, games yesterday, um, the Chiefs-Bills didn't live up to shootout, you know, in terms of the kind of game it was, but it was a good game. And who saw, you know, Patrick Mahomes throwing an interception after they fell behind 24-20? to 20? Josh Allen is spectacular, isn't he? Um, and in that game yesterday, Stephon Diggs was so, so good. Uh, in that game. He ended up with 10 catches, 148 yards. I think the Bills and the Chiefs really are the the best two teams. The game last night was interesting in that the Eagles had a 20 to nothing lead and then Dallas came back and took control of that game. It was 20 to 17 after two drives for touchdowns to open up the third quarter and their defense was playing lights out and then all of a sudden Philadelphia started to run the ball on Dallas, and in a couple of those key third downs on that drive after it was 20-17, to Dallas didn't come with the same level of pressure that they did on the first two drives. I actually think both teams are good. I think the Giants are obviously playing, you know, winning football. I mean, Lamar Jackson made a terrible play at the end of that game. The Giants are 5-1. and one. You know, the Eagles are 6-0. and oh. The Cowboys are 4-2. and two. What a division the NFC East is this year. Uh, without, you know, at least one of the teams participating in all the fun. Uh, but Buffalo, Kansas City in the game last night, I, I thought Dallas showed a lot of resilience down 20 nothing to get to get themselves back into that game. I guess on one hand, if you're a Dallas fan, you're like, at least we won't have a quarterback controversy with uh, with Dak um, and, uh, and Cooper Rush. Cooper Rush threw three interceptions last night, but he was good on those two touchdown drives. So was Zeke, by the way. He looked great. And then the Buffalo-Kansas City game, um, unbelievable at the end of the half where Buffalo goes 98 and a half yards uh, for a touchdown, their first to take a 10-7 lead. And then Kansas City, just like they did at the end of regulation in the playoff game, in 15 seconds they get to a 62-yard Harrison Butker field goal, and it's 10-10 at the half. Scoring definitely is down in the league. Um, defense is up, that's for sure. Uh, and Washington's defense is improving, which is why against a team as banged up uh, as Green Bay is, 
They'll have a shot Sunday. They're only a five-point underdog. All right, up next, Scott Van Pelt, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Coming up here in just a moment, uh, my good friend Scott Van Pelt will be our guest. Uh, Before we get to that, this segment of the show is presented by my good friends at MyBookie. Your favorite athletes always strive to put themselves in a winning position, and it's about time you did too with MyBookie. MyBookie has the biggest online selection of odds and contests to fill all your sports betting needs anytime, anywhere. Bet on the NFL, MLB playoffs, or play for a share of big cash prizes in the weekly blackjack tournaments that my bookie has if you've been waiting for the right time to get in on the action that time is now make your winning move today sign up at my bookie use my promo code kevin dc and claim your deposit match of any amount up to a thousand bucks again that's promo code kevin dc at mybookie.ag or mybookie.com to claim your bonus experience sports in a whole new light and make this season a winning one. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. All right, let's bring Scott uh, onto the podcast. Uh, I mentioned in the open, um, and you and I had talked about it, that Saturday was just an incredible day um, in sports. And we have these every once in a while, but Saturday was just, with the college football and the baseball and all of the dramatic games, etc., it just seemed like it was never-ending uh, until, you know, very late at night when that Padres-Dodgers game uh, ended. Uh, I know you felt the same way. Describe it. I mean, I, I, I tweeted about it just because it was impossible not to just try to just to sort of weigh in kind of like almost nostalgic. I just thought from, from the noon window where Penn state, Michigan was the one disappointing is not the right word, but it was the one, it was the one blowout result of the, of the unbeaten against unbeaten. But from, from noon until literally I turned the TV off late at night after the Padres beat, um, Dodgers, it was it was just incredible. Like the, the, it, it was the thing I said on on Sports Center um, last night was that it felt for Tennessee, for the Philadelphia Phillies fans, and for the San Diego Padres, it felt cathartic because they beat the exact team they would have chosen if they got to beat the team that would represent the happiest they could possibly be, right? Yeah. Tennessee beats Bama. I hadn't beaten them in 15 years. 
uh, Philly, maybe maybe the Mets, maybe the Mets would be who they choose. But the the Braves are the reigning champions, um, and and San Diego, of course, would pick the Dodgers, who dominated the regular season series. And whether it was college football, TCU scene was amazing. Um, obviously, Tennessee, Alabama was I felt like its own sort of singular thing. How about the how about that shot from overhead the minute the game ended with, with the, the fireworks, fireworks over the stadium? We're in, what an incredible job. I kept the one thing I kept and the CBS must not have had it. I kept waiting for the under the crossbar shot cuz I wanted to know how much that made it over by. And I'm like, where's that shot? I'm thinking I, I want to see it. But then I, I really didn't give a shit because they just kept showing the, the, the all that mattered was the emotion and the emotion was everywhere. Um, and so any direction you turn Saturday. Uh, the games were great. The scenes were incredible. And I just can't remember a day where it felt like there were that many that felt that's important to the people that got the wins. I mean, fans running out onto the field, fireworks going off. It seemed like it was happening every hour um, from somewhere. Uh, you know, Tennessee, yeah. then Cleveland. Um, I mean, we didn't even mention the Utah uh, comeback uh, over USC. Um, yeah, no, that was an incredible game, too. They just didn't win by enough, which was upsetting. That <laughs> <laughs> was very upsetting, actually. Um, yeah. So let's stick with college football here for a moment uh, because sure. B- Bama loses, but as we know, they've lost before. They lost to Texas A&M. Oh, oh one thing with that game, I, I you know, Saban is all-time great, okay? Mount Rushmore great. We all understand this. But whether it was the Texas A&M, A&M game last year at the end when he didn't call his timeouts on defense or at the end there where I thought they should have run the football and gotten it a little bit closer for the kicker and forced Tennessee to kind of call their their final timeouts. Do you think that this is an area that he's not great in, sort of the game management, because maybe he's just not in the situation enough? Probably. Um, you just you don't have to manage clock and late game sort of strategy that often. And, and the reason I... What I agree with you about is I would have wanted that field goal attempt from my kicker to be the last play of the game because the way Hooker right. and those receivers were, were were destroying their secondary, it was it was the type of thing where 15 seconds is enough for us to get close enough, and it was. And I would have I would have much preferred. All right, we either make this kick and get the hell out of here and win, or on the last play of the game, or we go to overtime. It can't be a situation where, you know, two passes equal a game-winning field goal for them, and that's exactly what happened. But I don't think, Kevin, that it's – I mean, it's clearly not specific to him. Lincoln Riley and their game against Utah, it's like, what are you doing? And Utah was brilliant because they're they're saying, we're going to score – as late as we possibly can. I mean, and it's, you, of course, I mean, it happened with Buffalo on Sunday. Of, of course, you're trying to thread the needle perfectly. We want to score and we want to exhaust the clock. But if we have to choose one or the other, we obviously have to score first. We can't, you know what I'm saying? We can't be greedy. No. And Utah couldn't be, that Utah couldn't be greedy, but if it was a perfect scenario where USC is just not going to call timeouts and we can score and leave Caleb Williams with, what, 20 seconds, then we're winning. And they rolled the dice, went for two, and got it. But USC had to call timeouts. They had if, to. If you call timeouts, you've got, you, you got two minutes left. And they just, they just let them not only Not only that, you, oh, you, yeah, make, you, you make them kick the extra point instead of going for two more likely than not as well. 
I mean, the the option of going for two and the win is much more plausible under a minute, where where you kind of are going for the win, not just the lead. I mean, 48 seconds remained, and USC could have easily gotten in field goal range. But four minutes to go, three minutes to go, two minutes to go, more likely than not, Utah's probably going to kick, and you're going to be in a tie game. Yeah, whatever, whatever it was, whatever yeah. it was, SC should have been calling timeouts, and they didn't. And, and Saban could have, you know, could have, uh, run it to, to make Tennessee. I don't. I can't remember the number of timeouts they had at that point in time. Though, to be honest, they had a couple. Um, they had a couple but, left. Um, yeah, they're, they're, you're right. Okay. Well, then. So then, if you run, I mean, look, I you put it in Bryce Young's hand, and you're saying, you know, make a play, and and you're you're banking on that too. So if that's if that's the explanation, I would just shrug and say, I get it. I mean, he made play after play on Saturday. Excuse me, on Saturday. So uh, I. But I, I again, I don't think I don't think Saban. Um, is the only person that I watch in those late game clock timeout scenarios, and I just I can't figure out what what they're thinking. Yeah, well, last year's Texas A and M game was the worst. He just let them go down and kick a you know a game winning field goal on the final play of the game without using any of his timeouts. It was it was remarkable. Um, the Tennessee Alabama Bama game was great. Now. Who's more likely to make the playoff, Tennessee or Alabama? I, you, you, I, you're the same as me when it comes to this because you've already gone, you've already done the math. Because <laughs> Tennessee has to play Georgia in the regular season, right? Which means if, which means if they, if they win, if they lose that game, then that means Georgia goes to Atlanta almost certainly, and then that means Bama gets a chance if they win out to go to SEC uh, Atlanta, game. and then. And then beat Georgia, and then now you've got Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee all sitting there with one loss, all doing that Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other, going, "Wait a minute, right? I mean, well, I beat you. Yeah, cool. Well, I beat you. Well, then, then how does it all sort itself out? So, who's more likely? I mean, um, right now, it, it's Tennessee because they haven't lost. Um, but, but in Tennessee's case, they'd have to beat Georgia and then theoretically Alabama again, right? Um, yeah. And, and well, actually, if they, I'm, beat, I'm sure if, if, if they beat Georgia, they won't have to win the SEC title game. Correct, correct. But but I'm you know I'm sure Alabama fans are uh, excuse me Mississippi fans are going well wait a minute I mean we're, we're over here we're in the top ten and and LSU fans are thinking you got to come to you still got to come to Baton Rouge speaking of Alabama right. I mean the path still exists clearly for them um, and their brand is such that. Um, that if they, they they can shake off a loss certainly much more easily than can most teams, also because the path for them includes chances to knock off, you know, big time teams. Um, but I mean, look, I've I've seen I've seen already people go, talking about three SEC teams and somebody else. You're like, well, wait a minute, you know, the the Pac-12 still very involved, the Big Ten still very involved. Um, the Big 12 still very involved. Like this is this is the latest. It feels like every conference has real championship contenders um, that I can remember because truly everyone has them. There are a couple of teams I'm actually interested in because LSU was. I think they're starting to get better, and I know that they got run by Tennessee. There were a couple of weird plays early, special teams plays early in that game, and it got sideways, and it was an 11 a.m. start. That whole thing. Um, but they 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 go Ole Miss and Bama the next two weeks, both in Death Valley, and I think they're a better team right now than they were two or three weeks ago. 
and they actually control their own destiny in the SEC West. I, I, right, I agree that they're better than they were, and I mean, sure, anything's possible. I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I've just seen them. That, that Tennessee game to me, I was like, yikes! I, I just, uh, you're that right. was where I and I had LSU. I think we both picked LSU yeah. in our pick segments, and then it was just, I mean, I don't, I didn't, I don't, to me, they didn't look like they were sort of in the same weight class as, as Tennessee in that in that game. Um, I, I agree. There were I mean, just some plays early, like special teams plays that went sideways for them. Well, they've been yeah. horrific on special teams yeah. all year. They've 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 made yeah. so many mistakes in the in the kicking game. It's incredible. But I mean. No, you're you're right that they look they looked awfully good um, on Saturday, and, and the good thing about playing in an, an incredibly tough schedule is you keep getting opportunities to beat big time teams. But um, I just I think there are far more plausible scenarios playoff wise, um, like a, like a UCLA, um, like a TCU. I mean, I, I and I, every direction you turn, like I said, in conferences around the country, um, there are people that are involved. So. Sure, you want to talk to me about Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia? I get it. Um, but this year it's way more complicated because of how many more other leagues um, actually have realistic hope. You know, a couple of weeks ago I would have said Georgia's the best team in the country and now we just have to kind of look at who's number two. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. And if I feel that way, I feel that way more about Ohio State. What do you think about the Buckeyes? Well, sure, they're – I mean – their their offense is is sort of singular in that league, um, and what I mean by that is just I mean they 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 feel like they can score thirty five and a half without a whole lot of sweat. Um, but that said, Michigan I mean Michigan was pretty eye opening. They they ground Penn State into dust on Saturday. Yep. I mean they, they ran for like what four eighteen I think it was. Yep. Um, so and that game you get that game in Columbus and obviously this is the first time they've had revenge um, as a motivation in that game in, in years. Um, but sure, Ohio State. I mean, they they look like they have a gear offensively with with Stroud and all those weapons, both in the backfield and, and a wide receiver. That um, you know, the thing, the, the line I always used to say with Rasilla when we would talk about teams is, you know, how good you're good, right? I mean, like there's a lot of good teams, but they have a good that not many others have. I agree with that. Uh, okay. What about Maryland and their win right now? As we're recording this this podcast uh, with Scott, we do not have. I don't have any word on Leah's MRI. Do you know anything? I didn't ask you before we started recording no. this. Okay. So no, I, don't, I, I don't. I don't know. I just. I know. I mean, I. I just. In typically, it's it's when when a player leaves the field, you know, on a cart. It, it's it's awfully rare that it comes back and it's always oh, it just a this or a that. Um, it's typically right. I mean, it, it's it, it would be it, it would be. I, I try to be optimistic. I just think it's hard to be optimistic. That this isn't going to be, you know, a, a lengthy if not season-ending type of thing just based on that alone. So I don't know. Well, at least there's not going to be a guy like wearing jersey number 35 that comes in to play quarterback like we had a few years ago when a middle linebacker was playing backup quarterback. I thought this guy, Billy Edwards Jr., looked good at the end of the Michigan game, and I know it was kind of a soft defense they were facing because Michigan had a two-score lead. And then I think I told you this uh, yesterday or, or whenever after the game, 
there was a lot of in his running ability as an option quarterback. Um, there was a lot that reminded me of Sean Hill, who was Ralph's first quarterback that first 2001 season. This guy was apparently very well liked and highly thought of at Wake Forest before coming here. I don't. I mean, I'm not suggesting there's not going to be a drop off from Leah, but I'm not concerned about it. Are you? I think that's. A, I think that's perfectly put. Are you saying he's as good as number three? No. Are you saying it's it's a middle linebacker <laughs> throwing passes? It's not that either. And look, they don't win Saturday without no. Billy's performance. He made he made a number of decisive runs that that were um, significant in the touchdown and the and the uh, drive that gave them the lead with the touchdown from Hemby, and then he made a number of runs, including the one that gave them you know the cushion that ultimately allowed him to um, you know to survived that last touchdown with about 19 deflected passes. Uh, so, yeah, I get it. He's, he's not Leah. Um, I assume they don't throw it as much, but he's certainly got a capable arm, and he's, he's clearly a decisive runner, uh, and, and maybe it's sort of a, it's a different look. Um, but listen, Maryland's in a spot now where, okay, you got Ohio State, Penn State, a trip to Wisconsin, which maybe doesn't look as scary as it did to start the year, and you've got Northwestern and Rutgers at home. So you're looking at these final five games and saying, all right, you need one to go to a bowl, you need two to go to a better bowl, and then, all right, let's get crazy and try to figure out, like, what's the path to a really good bowl? And I don't think that having the injury to Leah, whatever it is, eliminates thinking about that possibility. So, you know, um, it, it sucks because Leah is such a, uh, a significant part of what Maryland has done over these past couple of years. Um but, I mean, it's next man up is such a cliche in football, and it applies to every position. Um, fortunately, Saturday it didn't cost them a victory. And, in fact, I, again, I think they were able to win because of how, um, how Billy played. Yeah, I um I had Loxley on the radio show Friday, and you know I did I knew it was Friday, but I went back and asked him about the, all the Purdue calls. I don't think I told you this, um, but he said the one the league got back to him on and said that they missed was the fifty-two yard field goal that Ryland missed. That there was a player clearly offside. Well, the guy was offside. Yeah, and uh, right. c- yeah, and and he, but he said that it was not. Um, they they did not have enough conclusive video evidence to say that the extra point block was uh, was definitively offside. I don't know. He, I the, think he was in the neutral zone to start. Maybe, maybe. I just, I mean, it, complaining about officiating is is the lowest kind of form of fandom. Uh, I mean, like Bama fans are, are, are <laughs> wait, up and on. Wait, it's about. it's what it's what our fan base has been about in so many ways for our entire lives, and I agree with for, you. No, for sure. Let, let, me yeah. let me finish. Okay. Let me finish. Just let me finish. Doing that is is the lowest form of fandom, and Alabama fans are up in arms. Like Alabama, who the entire SEC is convinced the league is rigged for, is mad about how many calls went against them on Saturday. And I didn't think that. I don't think it was a well officiated game. Let me just be clear. Um, but but bitching about officials, everyone does. Having said that, I mean, I thought Demas got tackled in the end zone Saturday. Like when you get the official, when you get the, the the announcers on ESPN two going, well, if that's not interference, I don't know what is, and it wasn't. And then they got a PI on a duck on later in the game that I didn't think looked like PI necessarily. I feel like Maryland's defensive backs get called for more PIs, and we get fewer PIs than any team. I feel like the the game against Michigan, I like. I, I didn't think it was a pick up thirteen to ten. It never. It didn't. Have, it didn't seem to get reviewed. 
I think you could argue that the last pick in in Ann Arbor, I don't know that it was a pick, um, and and stacked one on top of another on top of another. Then the Purdue game, and then the and then some calls on Saturday. I don't like being the cliche fan guy, but I, I'm at my wit's end with this. And if I were locks, I swear to God, I'd just stand up there at a press conference and go, look, Commissioner Warren, whoever it is, just here's a blank check. Tell me what you want me to put on it so I can tell you how sick I am of, of what these calls are. It's just, it feels like week <laughs> after week. After, how many letters have they gotten from the league saying, yeah, we missed that one? Sorry. I know. I know. It's like. Well, and it's, so, so what do you do? So, I mean, you know. And by the way, if, if you make the extra points and it's a tie game and then, you know. Oh, you might, still might lose. Whatever. I mean, who, 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 you, you still could have lost the game. I, I, no one's saying they lost just because of that. It's just it's the trend of how many times these calls have gone against um, that I think is, for fans, particularly difficult to, to suffer through. So you try not to be, quote, unquote, that guy. Um but it's it's kind of hard not to be, given you know how many not so significant and then sometimes significant moments you feel like are impacted by it. But it's, look, it, it didn't cost them a game Saturday, and they won. It, it's it's been a bit of an identifier for the Maryland basketball fan base in particular, and but I also think that it comes with the territory of always having been. The outsider, you know, whether it was in the ACC as the northernmost outpost and not a North Carolina school or being this, you know, recent uh, Big Ten entry that nobody in the Big Ten really wanted. And by the way, we didn't want either. But, you know, now we're here and it's coming up on a decade in two years that we will have been in the Big Ten. But it's like, you know, Maryland was a charter founding member of the ACC but was always an outsider. And now in the Big Ten, it feels very much like you're an outsider. And when you're an outsider and you feel that way, there's an inferiority complex that develops, which means that every bad call that goes against you, you're pretty much sure sure was ordered by the other teams in the league office. But it just always seems to be us. I, I I agree, and but that's but that's such. I know. Again, it's just of it, it feels like such a small. It's it's such a small, cliched way to behave. And and as I say that, I'm I'm listing these different plays that you just kind of shrug, and then at some point you, and then finally you just get pissed off. You're like, what what, what is what are we doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> and, and again, I, well, you need to uh, excuse me. You need to be the down the line shot against Purdue. I think the kid maybe just jumped the snap. And, you know, I thought there was an offensive P.I. on that great receiver. There's Jones up 24-23 that would have backed him. You know what? I'm not going to talk about the Purdue game. Well, here's later. They won. I know. They did. But, but I want to just say this. It, it's what makes when you eventually break through and you start kicking everybody's ass, it's what makes it so satisfying. And, I, you know, the football thing is so much different, obviously, than basketball for, for we Maryland fans. I mean, being able to, you know, for that period of time, dominate Carolina, go toe-to-toe with Duke, win a national championship, be in the Final Four, be in the national, you know, elite conversation there for a decade or so with Gary, it, was, it, it made it so much more satisfying. I think there's actually – my point is, being sort of the redheaded stepchild in a league – comes with a much more satisfying ending when you win. <laughs> it feels so much right, better. But, but, 
sure, but but and but so okay, so so we're answering our own question here uh, against um, against Purdue. Just you, you had the you had the lead, you had opportunities. You, you, your defense turned them over three different times. You got nothing out of it. Score when you get the ball. Put the game to bed. Right. You you can take care of your own problems. You can eliminate the any one call being something that you're going to spend weeks complaining about by just handling your your end of the bargain. Of course. Um, and, and 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 for football, it's always going to be a chore because you. I mean, and the Big Ten's going to change. We're not always going to be on the on the same side of the of the street with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State. I mean, the league's going to do away with divisions. Um, which will which will be you know be doing us a favor. I think I told you this when I saw, when I saw Commissioner Warren at the lacrosse title. I and I know him and we have a, a very cordial and friendly relationship. But I was talking to him for a, I, I looked at Stanford Steve and I said, "Have we been talking for five minutes yet?" He said, "About." I said, "Okay, good. When are we doing away with divisions? We need to do away with divisions immediately." And he started laughing. I said, "I just I wanted to be you know have some pleasant conversation before I started demanding you you know you change the." Uh, the, the lay of the land in the conference, and he and he just laughed because he, you know, he understands we're Maryland fans, so we're, you know, it's tough because obviously you got two top five teams in the on your side of it. So you know, anyway, I, I, this I, goes back to they, hey, they, look, they're five and two. They got a game at home against Northwestern. Yeah. I, I'll, it, it'd be nice to see some people come out on homecoming and and give this team who's, you know, who's in the last two years given us more to cheer for than we've had in years. It'd be nice to show some support. I know it's been. It's tough. There's a million reasons why the fan base is deteriorated to the degree it has, but uh, you know, it it sure would be nice to see those guys get some support. Real quickly on the NFL, we always do this thing every year right around this mark. You know, five six weeks in. All right, now we've seen five six weeks of the season. Who's good and who isn't really good? So I'll start with you. Give me a team that's really good. Buffalo Bills. Uh, I'll go Kansas City. Who's next? Philadelphia Eagles. Right. Is that the list right there? I think San Francisco healthy is really good. Yeah, healthy. but they're they're a long way from healthy, and they're not going to get healthy anytime soon. Is their issue? Uh, Dallas Cowboys. Uh, their defense is real, and when they get Dak back, um, I think Dallas is going to be Dallas is going to be real. But what what's what's and I said this on Sports Center Sunday night. I, I, I know it's true. We're, we're this is just we're human beings. We sort of hang on to preconceived ideas, whether we think you stink or whether we think you're good. Tampa Bay, Green Bay, and Baltimore. They've got each one has an MVP quarterback, and you go, okay, well Brady's Brady. He'll figure it out. Rogers, Rogers, will figure it out. Jackson's Jackson. They'll figure it out. Those teams are all three and three. All of them. I know. Green Bay looked horrendous on Sunday. Awful. Tampa Bay hasn't looked good yet. Um, Baltimore just, they invent ways to have games slip away, which is incredible. How about this stat? They've led every game by, by double digits, six. They're the first team in NFL history to lead their first six games by double digits and only win three of them. I didn't know First that. team in NFL history. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we think the Giants stink because they have. We think the Jets stink because they have. The Vikings, I know you don't think they stink because you love Kirk no, Cousins. No, actually, actually, I told you this, I think. I think they were much better last year uh, than they are this year. This is the funny thing about but, the NFL. You have, this thing, you have this thing with Cousins, again, that you love like a child, and they're 5-1. and one. I don't know if they're good. The Giants, I mean, the Giants just beat Green Bay and, and Baltimore back-to-back. They're 5-1. and one. I, you got to give it. They're, if nothing else, they're hanging in games and figuring out how to win them late, which is a skill. 
and the the Jets are the Jets are four and two. They've won three road games. I mean, how they've done it is is really neither here nor there. They've done it. Um, I'm not saying these are teams that we say are good for sure, but the record says they are. Uh, it's been a strange year, I think, thus far in the NFL. Like the, the whole NFC West. Na- name an NFC West team you think's good. You said San Francisco. Healthy, yeah, but without Bosa, without some of these pieces, they're not the same team. Defensively, when they're healthy, they're awesome. I agree with that, but but they like what happened to them in that in that game. I guess against by the time that Carolina game was over, they'd lost Bosa, they lost Mosley. I think Kinlaw, their defensive yeah. lineman, went to IR. They're um, on third running back that, already. Yeah, I know. I, I don't. I don't know who's. I don't know who's good beyond that. But what do we say? We said Buffalo, Kansas City, Philadelphia. I'm saying Dallas is for sure. Um, I don't know if the Chargers are. Speaking of healthy, I mean they're they're banged up. Um, with you know, Bosa's a difference maker. Obviously, he got he's been injured quite a bit. Um, I mean, we get to see them tonight. I, I I like them. I just I don't know if they're good or not. Should Brady have gone to Kraft's wedding on Friday, miss practice, and then miss the walkthrough on Saturday or not? I don't think that's why they lost the game. I, I they haven't they've scored more than twenty one points in one game, and it was the game they got beat at home by double digits by the Chiefs. They've been bad on offense all year. So, I mean, if, if he doesn't go to that and he's there for a walkthrough, we think he's what like got four touchdowns on Saturday, on Sunday rather. I don't, I don't, I think, I think, I think it has nothing to do with anything. I just, I just think I, and I mean, I, I, I don't. People have lives, man, and I respect that they have lives, like real lives and real shit that, that they deal with. And I mean, all this chatter about his personal life and whatever. I just, he just looks miserable at all times. And, and has not looked at any point in any of these games like any of this has been any fun. And I just think, man, I can't imagine what sort of goes through somebody's head, you know, if, if this is a real-life thing that's, that, that's going to happen. And, you know, you have this very public marriage, and everybody's talking about it, and then you're struggling professionally, which is really something you haven't done a whole lot. I don't know. It just it creates – it's like a car wreck, you know what I mean, where people are just, like, rubbernecking at, at Brady, who's never kind of ever seemingly had to deal with a ton of – on-field struggles. Um, I don't know. It's unusual. Yeah, he looks miserable. And the whole off-season thing, you know, will he, won't he, didn't. He retired, he comes back, then he's not, you know, then he leaves during training camp. It's it's a weird situation there altogether. You know, in that division is a team that I've been talking about a little bit since the beginning of the season because I, I'm i a big Arthur Smith fan. The Falcons are yeah, so – are so close to being a lot better than three and three. I mean, they—they they, you're so right. You're so right. They should they should have beat New Orleans. Should have. I mean, it really. And I mean, look, so many games in the NFL come down to one play. Baltimore. If Baltimore gets the third and one Sunday, with like three and a half minutes left, they probably put that game to bed. But they, there's a there's a penalty, and then there's a pick on the next play, and they lose. I mean, they, they were one yard away from getting a first down against New Orleans. It would have won them that game. They didn't get it. Uh, they actually had a chance late against yeah, Rams, um, the, Rams. the Rams, which was kind of make-believe. They kind of had a late chance against Tampa Bay, but they were getting crushed in that game. Yeah, but that was the so, Grady I mean, Jarrett play, I mean, on the roughing the passer and Brady. I understand yeah. that, but I mean, okay, you were down 21 nothing. No, no, I, I know. They, you, if you and get they, the ball back, and, I mean, they could have. They could have. Your point's still well taken, that they're they're better than, than maybe people thought they'd be. But still, even even with Tampa Bay's issues right now, I have to think that at some point it kicks in and the talent that they have rises to a, a level where you, you're good enough to be better than Atlanta, Carolina, and, and the Saints. 
it's just interesting, and I talked about it in the open. The teams, if you go and look at everybody's preseason, you know, power rankings, Seattle, the Falcons, the Giants, and the Jets were all four teams that basically ranked consistently between 27 and 32. And all of them have overperformed. And we'll find out whether or not they're legit. But the Giants at 5-1, and one, obviously Brian Dable's doing a really good job. Real quickly on the Ravens. I, I, I haven't seen uh-huh. this yet. Were you watching that game? A little bit. I mean, but the way it's hard to, you know. Okay. What, what specifically? At the end, did, so, did one of his analytics nerds up in the press conference tell him to let Saquon Barkley score for the 24-20 lead? It looked like they they laid down. I was looking for a quote to find if anybody asked him about that. I didn't see it, but but they they. I don't know. I mean, that would have been the dumbest thing of all time. Their lead was three, and they had to, their timeouts left. You try to stop them and no, force think, them to kick I, a field goal. I don't goal. think that's what happened. I think what what happened was you had a pi in the end zone on a pick, and then you're at the one large yard line, yeah, and um, and and Barkley scored. I mean, I. I, I I didn't I didn't it didn't look like they just did like the stand up at the line of scrimmage play. Okay, I mean Barkley kind of went in the air, but it didn't look like anybody was really pinching in. And then and then Barkley went down after a first down run that almost looked like they were letting him score there with a four point lead with uh, with a four point deficit. Um, okay, do the Yankees win tonight? The baseball playoffs have been great. I mean. You, Statistically, through the years, Cleveland has not been great in this spot. Um, elimination games, and I mean, whatever Yankee Stadium's lore and 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 aura and mystique, whatever that those what was that line years ago that those are dancers at a club or something. But yeah. whatever Yankee Stadium is worth, I mean, yeah. But I'm shrugging as I say that. I mean, it'd be wild for baseball to lose Atlanta, the Mets, the Dodgers, and the Yankees before. <laughs> Divisional before and the championship series, but you know what's funny, Kevin? Is everyone? I, I shouldn't say everyone. You you see complaints about the oh this format this isn't fair. Like what are you talking about? Like baseball's not fair. You grade on a hundred and sixty two game scale, and then you're going to decide something on a three game series or a five game series or a seven game series. It's inherently not going to met itself out the way it does over one hundred sixty two games. Which by the way, you get to. You where you get to play a bunch of crummy teams, and now you're playing people that are your equal, and it's a crapshoot. So I, I just I don't understand the hand wringing. Like, I I mean back in the day there were two divisions in both both uh, leagues. I remember the Orioles won a hundred and something games and didn't even make the playoffs because the Yankees won one game more. Like, you would cry about unfair. I mean baseball's just it's a sport. I, I just I don't I don't understand the complaining. Uh, the only thing that I wish I wish this round was best of seven. Um, I don't know why they've stuck with best of five forever. I, I think best of seven, it would produce more money. And, um, you know, it, it allow teams that won 111 games to stick around down 3-1 with a chance to come back. All right, last one, uh, because we haven't talked at all about them, but just Washington, the football team, the commanders, thoughts. I don't – that's 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 really vague. No, it's not. You know what I, I, I want you to tell me what you think of them. Um, I don't know, man. They're, uh, they're pretty limited. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, will it, will it ever, did you read the whole story last week from, I I had Wickersham on the radio this morning. Um, did you read it? I did. 
So do you think that any of this will lead to him finally being, you know, ousted or deciding to sell? No. No, I just, I don't. I, I don't think that. Um, I, I think, I don't know the guy, but he's been here long enough for us to, to have a decent sense that I think he's, he's nothing if not defiant and dig, digs his boots in and isn't going to be told what to do. And if, you know, if he's gathering dirt on other owners for real, I don't imagine that would be particularly difficult to do. I mean, I think if we've, if we've seen anything when it comes to, you know, ownership across all of sports and the, the issues that have come up with, you know, whether it's a Sterling or a Sarver or whatever, is that incredibly wealthy people who aren't, aren't used to having anyone tell them what they can't do don't always behave the most honorably, do they? So if, and I'm not speaking of Snyder, I'm saying if he wanted to look around and find others that, that you know, that had something that they wouldn't want to have vetted, then... You know, I, I could just see. I, I just imagine that, that as as it's been described to me through the years, that if if someone wants to try to take Snyder out, that he would say, "Okay, cool. Well, you're. I'm grabbing every one of you and dragging you to the bottom with me." Yeah. Right? Yeah. Aren't Aren't you glad you don't have to talk about him every day? I mean, I I don't know how. I don't know. Is, are the phone lines lit up? Of course. Every day. I, I could sit there and take calls for the whole three hours, you know. On, you know, if, it, about, if, if there's a reasonable topic, I, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just, I, I don't, I, Tommy and I say this all the time. I think there's a group of people, um, and, and I'm, I'm very, very thrilled that these people are there. Because without them, I don't know, I'd, be, I'd probably have to do something else. Um, that, that almost enjoy the conversation about the team, whether it's, you know, rubbernecking or, the, you know, a participant, as they do actually watching the games. So it's really, it's really an interesting sort of case study in, in, in I mean, I, I had some the other night after Rivera's sound where he was you know reacted passionately after they won. I I just sort of ad libbed this thing about I just it's so hard for me to to try to describe to you guys out there what what this is compared to what it was and 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 how you know RFK I said RFK sits there like a, like an old bat a rusted out battleship waiting to be sunk and how that's this perfect metaphor for what once was and you know. Look, this is something that isn't an original thought. It's been said by a million people forever. I mean, how they were this source of civic pride and this great commu- this great connector of all areas and counties and socioeconomic and religion and everything. I mean, they were the religion. And maybe that's it. Maybe they still are sort of, you know, that the, the ability to talk about it and, and feel connected to something, even if you're connected to the past. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. Or maybe we're all just bored out of our minds. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I think uh, I, I think people, but, whether it's celebrating or wallowing together, um, 
they don't mind being part of a community. People always want to feel part of a group. And I think that, you know, it's been obviously a lot less celebration and a lot more, you know, misery. Washington fans have been sitting Shiva for a long time. A a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Without the, without, without the good food. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, after how many years of, of the results, can, can anyone reasonably expect it to remain passionate and or optimistic? I don't know. So, All right, see ya. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. All right, up next, Tommy Shepard, the Wizards GM, will be on with me. The Wizards open up their season Wednesday night in Indiana. Uh, that next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Well, the NBA season is upon us. Uh, we saw hockey open up last week, and this is the time of year where we got all four of the major sports going on. Uh, the Wizards open up their 2022-2023 season on Wednesday night on the road against Indiana. Joining me now on the show is Wizards general manager Tommy Shepard. All right, I'm going to cut to the chase here. I'm not going to beat around the bush. We'll come back to the roster and the things that you you feel confident about and the areas that are a little bit murky, but I want to cut to the chase with this. Is this team on paper better than the team you had last year? Yes. Yeah, it is. We have a lot more depth, and I think we have some quality uh leadership veterans that were added to to help augment the leadership that we had existing but uh, in terms of competition for minutes and training camp and legitimate camp uh legitimate starting positions that are open you know i think it was very uh, obvious that we we added a lot more talent in the off season and uh, we're excited to see where it translates all right. The other Thank part. Thank you for having me on. No, it's always great to catch up. I, lo- I love having these conversations with you. The other part of sort of cutting to the chase early is this: Is this Tommy a season where there is pressure on you, on West Junior, to win forty-four games, um, qualify for the playoffs, one through six seeds, uh, th- one through the six seed, not you know, not the play-in? Is is that that this kind of a, of a season? A a win now or else kind of a season? No, it's never win now or else. I hadn't heard that from anywhere, but I promise you there's always pressure. We put it on ourselves. You know, what you described, that's something we strive for every single season, but you got to do it when you have the right number of players that are ready and available, and and I think the, the uh, accumulation of what we've gone through to get to this point where you consider this time last year we had – to now we have 10 new players on our roster. So obviously we had to do a lot of changing. That's what happens when you don't win. But the pressure is to, to just continue to get better, and that's something we put on ourselves. Ted, Monumental uh, Sports, they've been fantastic, very great supporters of what we're trying to do and keep adding more talent and get ready for those big moments when they appear. And, you know, we, we started free agency last year at, at trade deadline when we acquired Kristaps Porzingis, and we swung a trade to get Monty Morris and Will Barton from Denver. We added uh, DeLon Wright through free agency and Taj Gibson. Like th- Those are guys who've been through the wars. They've been in big games. We had a lot of success this summer with Danny playing with Team Israel. We have Chris Tass playing with Team Latvia. A lot of activity going on that shows us you know, where we're going. Kevin, I think, is an exciting place because we've got a lot of guys who are really dedicated to getting better. And most of, first and foremost, we have a healthy Bradley Beal, and he looks tremendous. 
Uh, at $250 million, no trade clause, but that was a priority. You guys got it done. And I, I would wonder before we get into the roster in a little bit more detail, is there a bigger, Tommy, um, as long as, you know, Brad and Porzingis stay healthy, we should be okay. Is that the biggest key more than anything else to this season? I think that's a huge key. I would add in there, you know, the ability to play off of Chris Tapps, Porzingis, and Bradley Beal, putting, you know, Kyle Kuzma in that mix in terms of a guy who can really help prop up the, the starting. You know, the, the, those two guys right there are a lot to expected of them. I think Kyle can be a, a tremendous addition to that group. I, I do think we have a lot of different guys who can score a lot of different ways. I really do believe that that. that Chemistry between Bradley and Chris Tapps has been apparent. We see it every day in practice. Hasn't been able to get out on the floor as much. Uh, they played the one game in Japan together. That's unfortunate, but it's what it is. In this day and age, you know, talent knows talent. They figure it out. And those two players are certainly talented, that's for sure. If we can keep them on the floor and have them playing together for, you know, 75 to 82 games during the regular season, uh, that would be Awesome. All right. Uh, tell me about Will Barton and Monte Morris and what they bring to the team. Well, you got two guys that you know exactly what they're going to bring. You know, Monte is a he, he's shown uh, because of injury in Denver, he was a capable starting point guard in the NBA when Jamal Murray was out. I think his numbers speak for himself. He was very competent at the defensive end as well. But he's a guy that's a, he's a pass first, but he can score. He definitely is a pesky defender. I think Will Barden, he scores in bunches. You can start him, not start him. You can bring him in, plays multiple positions. But Will is, you know, he bleeds basketball. And that, that's one thing I think that's raised the level competition-wise for minutes. When you have people like that, they, they're going to really push the people behind them are going to have to raise their game, you know, because those guys are going to play a lot of minutes. I think DeLon Wright brought to us the backcourt, uh, the big defender that we've, we've lacked in the past. We got a guy, a legitimate six five, who can go out and shut down the other teams. Uh, you know, whoever if it's a one or it's a two that's gutting us, he, he's somebody that we think can come in and cool him off. He can finish games, and he's actually you know, he's very proficient from the three point line. But he he's been in big games. Monty and Will, you know, he's talking about conference finals, finals right. with Coos. We got guys who played it, and that, that matters a ton. And then adding, you know, just such a wonderful presence in Taj Gibson who can. Go out and give you minutes when you need him, but he can stabilize your locker room at all times. He's a great practice player, gets after it, but make no mistake, he can still play. You know, he's very expanded his game. He's a three-point shooter. He's uh, one of the better rebounders in the NBA. He's going to help us tremendously on the glass. We got to get better there, but he's been uh, just a tremendous leader at, at, at every area in our locker room. As you know, locker rooms are you got older guys and young guys. You have international guys. You got a lot of different blends of. Of uh, backgrounds, and he kind of brings everybody together, and it's been wonderful to have him here. And then, I can't say enough about Johnny Davis. I think his his best days obviously are going to be ahead of him, but where he is as a player right now, <laughs> many rookies have faced it before. That one area, one end of the game is ahead of the other. His just happens to be defense, which we need. So that's good. He's really been a very good active defender for us. The shots will come. He's figuring it out. His shot, you know, his. If you watch him, Kevin, you got a great eye for for talent. What he's doing right now, his release is a little slow. So in college, you can get away with that. Here, you got to get it up quicker. And I think he's missing those six seconds in the shot clock. He's used to dancing with the ball a little bit more. So we're trying to get him into quick decision making. Get to your spot, get it up, 
moves the ball, one of those. And he's just a tremendous assimilator. You give him the message, he goes out, works on it, practice, comes back, and he brings it to the game. I'm really confident where his uh, future is for us. He's going to be a really durable defender, two-way guy who can score. It's interesting. I mean, the quick release is always the difference sometimes with the shooting between college and pro players. But the six seconds that you talked about and just thinking about him, you know, as a college player at Wisconsin, there was kind of a methodical way in which he went about trying to, you know, create shots. And you don't have those extra six seconds. It's got to move uh, a lot faster. Um Tell me about Hachimura. I mean, this is, you know, last year obviously missed a lot of time. And I think we all thought before last year, this is like the wild card. This is a guy that could, you know, eventually become a star and be, you know, a second or third star on this team. Where is he with his game? What are you expecting from Rui? He's been tremendous. He showed great improvement from a year ago. You know, and I know when you miss training camp, you miss preseason. Very seldom do you have a good year. He actually came back, you know, 40 games into the season and, and was spectacular. Shot that ball very well from three. Able to score in bunches. Uh, he's got to get better defensively. <laughs> it's kind of a recurring theme, but I think with Rui right now, we're very satisfied with his progress. He's been able to pick it off the glass, take it up the court, make plays. Now he's learning where the doubles are coming from. He's passing out quicker. I think he's making a lot better decisions with the ball when he's coming up the floor. But he, he gets to his spots. He makes his shots. Uh, and and I think now we watched the other night in New York. We threw him on multiple players that the Knicks had going, different sizes, different qualities. You know, if you're guarding Julius Randle, you're going to guard him a certain way. Willie was, uh, Rui was very physical with him. And then he got out on the perimeter a couple of times, switched out on some guards, did a good job on that. So I know his, his defensive acumen has gone up. I think what we got to expect from him is the consistency. He's a player that's going to go out and get you a steady 15 a night. I think he's going to shoot the ball very well, get to the free throw line. He's got to knock down you know, his free throws in preseason. I think he, he got to the line the most out of anybody on the team. I know he can make more than 68%. I think he's, he's closer to 75% free throw shooter and better. So the one thing I was most uh, really happy with is he rebounded a lot better preseason this year than he has in the past. That's what we need him to do, and he answered the call. He's seven and a half rebounds in preseason. So we saw progress in every every area of the game. Um, the most important thing for, for us is that we can rely on what he's going to bring to the game every night. Be consistent. Go out there. You don't have to outkick, outdo your coverage, anything. Just, just go out there and be you and do that every night, and that's going to be good enough. We're excited for him. He really looks good, Kevin. What do you need from Denny this year? We need him to be much better uh, at everything that he was good at last year. He's got to improve defensively. He's a good defender. His size really helps us. I think he's ideal as a starter, actually, because he's, he doesn't need the ball a whole lot. He's not going to take a ton of shots, but he can guard. But what he can do, <laughs> this, is a, this is a straight bribery, I'll tell you off the top, but he, I said, Danny, if you get the ball off the glass, you take it up, you can make any play you want. Right. You know, We're better in transition. We really push that as you see. If you're watching us play, like I know you are, you'll see Rui do that. Yeah. You'll see Kuz do that. And, and for Denny, that's something I watched him in big games this summer playing in Eurobasket do. And it's, it's something that's very second nature to him. He's a really good player. I know DHO's decision-making, he can do a lot more with the ball than maybe we've asked him to do in the past. And this year, he's not going to be able to hide. We're going to ask him to do a lot more, facilitating the offense. So 
if he comes off the bench, if he starts, we know what he, he can bring to the table. He got a little setback coming back from Israel. We, we really wanted to err on the side of caution, but he, um, you know, missing training camp wasn't quite the same. Like, he was active that whole time. He's shooting the whole time. One thing I think you'll see is improvement on his three-point range, and I think you'll see him play through contact better, Kevin. That's something I know bugged you in the past, bugged us too. He's got to get up, get to the rim, punch it through. I, but I love his IQ, right? I mean, this is a high yeah, IQ player. Absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned DeLon Wright and you mentioned Barton. Like, I, I with with Wright, Barton, and even a guy like Todd Gibson, is there is there a toughness that you that you have on this team this year with guys like those three? I'm just mentioning those three because Barton and and Gibson have been tough competitors. DeLon Wright, you know, that long arm six five defender. You mentioned it. He's played in big postseason games in Toronto. In fact, against Washington in one of those series, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> he put a hurt on yeah, us. He, really, right. he really did. And um <laughs> is there a toughness with those three and maybe, you know, somebody I'm not thinking of that you really haven't had previously? No, I, th- I think that the tough guys, they come to your franchise and they can elevate the toughness of other people around them. It, it takes on its own identity. One or two players can change the identity of your team. And some of those guys are existing. Bradley Beal is a very tough guy. He he posts every night. He's going to go out and play through injury. He does all kinds of things. But defensively, hard knows he knows he can pick it up now. He's got a lot more help. He doesn't have to save himself for the offensive end. I think Bradley, combined with these guys, they certainly they, they bring that to practice every day. There's a hard-nosed edge to everything. We're seeing a lot more diving on the floor. We're seeing a lot more rebounds that are contested and the guys going up and grabbing it. You know, again, I don't want to put any pressure on a rook, but like Johnny Davis is a tough kid. Right. He, he really is. He's made some amazing plays in practice where he'll run through people and not blink. Uh, his football background serves him well. He doesn't worry too much about what where his body is. He's going to do whatever it takes to, to get the possession. Anthony Gill's a tough guy. So you put these guys in a room together, I think it does start to iron sharpen iron kind of deal where these guys all, you elevate, you say, what's our standard? And everybody lifts to that standard. The new guys have certainly helped that, bring it out in, in some of the returning players. But I'm, I'm really satisfied where, where I think we have a high-character team that loves to play together, that, that they'll get after it. And I think we got a streak of nastiness in us that will come out. All right, let's talk about Bradley. First of all, is he how's his health? Fantastic. He, he looks great. We held him out of a preseason game because uh, we were in Japan and the turnaround was a little too quick, right. it was a little too early. And then when we came back, he was uh, he got in the protocols. He had strep throat, got through that, and uh, played. I thought the other night it was, it was the game was easy for him against the Knicks. It was it was almost like looking at two years ago when he was putting up thirty a night. He just he scores it easy, very efficient, but he makes the right play. And if you <laughs> if you suffered through watching our three point shooting a little bit during that game, it was a little bit like tin cup there for a while. But Bradley was making the <laughs> right plays. Yeah, he's making the right plays. Yeah. The, the balls, the, you know, the shots weren't dropping, but you know he's he's a very willing passer, and he's going to make the right play every time. And we know, and he counts on these guys to knock down shots. He knows that they can. He's got all the confidence in the world in him. So we're excited. We we wish there was one more game that you know KP Bradley could have played together. But you know when you go to Japan, two games that that really took us off the the surface of the NBA for a while. You're up in the air, and it's a it's a long trip in a short amount of time. That's not an excuse, but we have to come back. 
knowing that, hey, we're, we probably could have used three or four more days of practice, probably one more game, but we just don't have that. So let's maximize what we do have. Uh, just uh, real quickly, was that trip a trip in which – um, I mean, first of all, just from an experience standpoint, for everybody involved, that's an incredible trip. But were there a lot of Wizards fans there because of Rui? Oh, man, it was insane, yeah. I think there's there's a ton of NBA fans and there's a ton of Rui fans that are the same people. But certainly I think there was a lot of people there celebrating that. You have Golden State, the world champs in the, in the building as well, or the right. NBA champs, I should say, or everybody in the building. I think that was just a celebration for Japan. To have that, that those two games, it was spectacular. The fans' participation was awesome. Really satisfied with the third game. We 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 wore their starters out. We were doing pretty well. We let the game get away with us late in the game with our third and fourth line, and that's to be expected. But those guys, that we need to see what they can do too. So we were we we took away from going to Japan. That's a fantastic basketball community that that really loves the game. But I tell you what, Kevin, it was it's almost like being at a tennis match. It, they'll They'll celebrate a great play, and then this gets really quiet. <laughs> it's like someone was hitting a mute button during the game, and, and that's just the culture. They're very polite people, but they they celebrated having Rui home, and he he loved the bear hug, and he gave it right back to him, and he's able to give Steph a bottle of his uh, black his black samurai wine, which uh, Steph was a, just really over over the heels over. That was a neat present to have. And oh, that's cool. He gave all of our players a kimono, and uh, we just had opportunity to share culture at the same time, get some basketball stuff done. It was cool as heck. And then I will tell you one of the coolest things was having George Merce on there with some of the best sumo wrestlers in Japan history, taking pictures of different sized people. <laughs> it was fascinating to a lot of the, the local people. Oh, that's fun. Um, all right, so back to Brad for one second. Is there a point total that he can average that is too high that you would look at and say that doesn't necessarily equate to wins? I don't even think I asked it the right way, but I'm just wondering, like, if he yeah, ends no, up, I know what you're saying. yeah, if, if he has to score 31, 32 a game and be among the league's leading scorers, does that equate to something better with respect to record or worse? Well, it's all about efficiency. And if we can add more scoring around him and take some of the pressure off, I actually think he can score more and we'll we'll score more as a team. Uh, If we get him back to some catches through threes and and, and make the offense a little bit easier for him where he's not seeing double and triples and pickup points at half court and give him a lot more breathing room, our spacing is going to be huge. But, you know, when you put Przingis out one corner, move him around on the perimeter, and you have Kuzma – those guys can bury threes, and Bradley can get to the rack. He can pull back. He can do step back. There's a lot more he can do with just the space, and Monte's a very capable shooter as well. So I think Bradley, to answer your question, it's, I don't care how much he scores. If he's making the right plays and the ball's moving, we're going to be very efficient. If we have to go to him every night to bail us out and rely on him to score 30, 35 a game, you're not going to win to your point It's just going because it's not going to be an efficient amount of points what's really going to separate him i believe this year kevin is just a continual rack attack where he can get to the line if he can get to the rim that opens up the whole floor for him then i think you see a lot more opportunities to score without having to uh you know dance with the ball and get deep in the clock and have double and triple like i said you're going to either get to the line you're going to have a clean look you'll be able to score in transition make the game easier for him and, and that's that's why you add talent that's that's really where we think we're 
we're a lot better equipped to help Bradley this year. You know, one of the things that's noticeable in the last couple of years is all of your bigs could really run the floor and 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 finish. I mean, you know, even a guy like Bryant and a guy like Gafford, Porzingis can obviously run the floor. But when the game slows down, um, is Porzingis the kind of pick-and-roll player that will really pose problems, uh, whether it's, you know, Monte running it with him or or or, or Bradley or whomever, Um because, you know, I, I still think that that team you guys had that, you know, one series and advanced to the second round and was close on a couple of occasions to advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, they may not have get, gotten along super well, but John and Gortat running that pick and roll, that was a tough combination to check, especially when you had some shooters waiting in the corners, whether it was Bradley or Trevor or whomever. Um, what kind of big man, when the game slows down, do you see Porzingis being with Brad? No, I think they'll play well off each other. The, the two-man games live and, and well with those two. Uh, I think Porzingis, certainly he can roll to the rim, but he, he pick and pop-wise, he pick your poison. I mean, Brad, Bradley can get downhill in a hurry. Chris has to be wide open at the three-point line, and he's very proficient from there. He, he showed last year, actually, we had a nice little stretch. I think we went yeah. six and five over an 11-game yeah. stretch, and he was we were throwing a saddle on him. I mean, we, took, we were down big to the Lakers. He took the... Game over. We won in the fourth quarter. Did the same thing to Golden State. Like he, he's just used to being able to to shoot over people. I think he's a lot more athletic than probably meets the eye. I think everybody's kind of they've fallen in love again with the unicorn because of uh, maybe some of the stuff that was going on with Victory Wambiyama down in, in yeah. Vegas, and it reminds right. people of all this versatile big man that can really do all these different things. You know, where's those guys? Ben and, and it, his name is one of the first that surfaced when they were trying to make comps, and for right, rightfully so, he was an all-star. He's a guy that had, I think he had 300 points in his first 10 games in New York, uh, better than Bernard King ever was. In, in, in those 300, you know, those 300 points in 10 games, I'm saying it broke Bernard King's record. And Chris Tapps is a very capable player. I think he's been hampered by injury. Now he's in a good system. In the stretch, in, in a half-court setting, he can do a lot of great damage to defenses. Chubb, was there ever a better bucket getter in bunches than Bernard King? No. Bernard was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. All right. Um, Best of luck to you. It's going to be fun to watch. Oh, I know what. I I had one more. Um, Give me a player. You've mentioned almost every player. You know, one player we didn't talk a lot about was Kispert. But just give me a player right now that you think that maybe fans like like me aren't thinking is going to make a major contribution at some point during this year. But you see it coming. West sees it coming. The organization sees it coming. We, We see the steady improvement of Gafford. And that second group, and being able to get him out on the to your point, you talk about rim roller and, and a guy that plays above the box. He gets easy lobs. Uh, I think that's somebody's going to continue to improve. He's improved his ability to score around the rim, and he's a good rim def- uh, defender. So I think his his productivity is going to continue to increase as you increase the amount of talent on that second unit. You know, the most obvious statement in scouting sometimes, he's a really good player when he's with good players. Yeah. So our ability to raise that level, that second unit, add more talent, that's going to make him even that more valuable. Uh, one thing I think he'll be really impressed with is, is his ability to switch directions and, and get down and be the first guy down on offense and be the first guy down on defense. He's yeah. one of the fastest people on our team. Yeah, athletic as hell. Um 
Thank you. Uh, by the way, after Wednesday night's opener against the Pacers, the Wizards' home opener is Friday night against the Bulls. So get tickets and get down to Capital One. Uh, Tommy, thanks. Best of luck this year. Look forward to watching. Man, it is always a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great one. All right, that's it for the show. Thanks to Tommy Shepard. Thanks to Scott Van Pelt. Back tomorrow with Tommy.